maybe I should, before I move on list, I've got 20 different types of dreams. And then yeah, I- Good, because I actually had a list. I've got okay. one, two, three, four, five. I have seven. Okay. Uh, so if you've got 20, you, yeah. you beat me, so. <laughs> well, let's see if you're seven or here somewhere. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, Dr. Sharon Kogan returned to the podcast to discuss Jungian dream interpretation. Sharon also talks about the history of dream interpretation and the many different kinds of dreams. Sharon will also join me on Sunday, December 4, for the first ever Rebel Spirit Radio live stream where we'll talk more about dreams and Sharon will also interpret dreams for those rebel spirits who join the live stream. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Dr. Sharon Kogan holds a Master of Theological Studies from Harvard Divinity School, an MA from Stanford University, and a PhD from Syracuse University. She recently retired from the University of Colorado in Denver, where she founded the Religious Studies Program and served as the director for many years. She was a beloved professor teaching courses on myth and symbol, classical mythology, world religions, mysticism, concepts of death and the afterlife, concepts of the soul, and differing concepts of the divine. Her areas of study include the history of religions and psychology of religion. She is author of the book, Sacred Disobedience, a Jungian analysis of the saga of Pan and the devil. Dr. Kogan also serves on the board of directors of the C.G. Jung Society of Colorado. Sharon, welcome back to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. You are my first return guest. I'm honored. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and it's as it should be, as it should be. So the last time you were on the program, we were talking about your book, Sacred Disobedience, which I still encourage everyone to go out and get a copy of. It's an amazing book. Thank you. Um, but today you are joining me to talk about dreams and dream interpretation. Is that right? Yep. All right. So I thought that we could start just by talking about dreams a little bit, the significance of dreams, because, and I think in our modern scientific culture, aren't we told that it's just sort of garbage in, garbage out? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the modern, as far as I know, kind of what I call mainstream psychology, most psychologists or psychiatrists that you'll talk to or hear, I think the state of the art these days is that dreams are just garbage in your mind dreams are just random firings while you're asleep and they really don't mean anything and modern psychiatrists psychologists they don't, as far as i know don't you do much with dreams so if you're a client of a psychologist they're probably not going to ask you about your dreams but unions are different of course and all unions are going to engage in dream analysis and always be asking the client about their dreams, right? Unions yeah. think, yes, it is meaningful, a meaningful language, messages from the unconscious. Right, right. And, and I'm looking forward into getting into all of this and how Jungians kind of parse the meaning of the dreams and kind of the purpose of all of this. Yeah. But I thought that maybe we could start by 
looking as well, because you've got such a rich background in the world's uh, religious traditions and dreams are a significant part of the oh, yeah. religions, right? Um, yeah. So I thought that maybe you could say a little bit uh, about how dreams have been approached in uh, some of the world's religious traditions. Great, sure. Um, yeah, indigenous people, ancient people around the world, they always thought dreams are a message from the gods, you know, from the divine. And there are examples, you know that book, Black Elk Speaks? Mm -hmm. A lot of people will use that in classes. It's a Native American a Sioux community. And the little boy, a Black Elk, when he was a nine-year-old child, he had a what's sometimes called initiatory sickness. And nobody knows what happened, but he was like in a coma for days and days. And when he came out of it, he told, well, actually, he didn't tell of his dream till years later. But the dream was so powerful and significant about the white men coming and completely destroying their world and themselves and their tribe and their whole worldview, you know. So it was pretty devastating. Well, what's so amazing is that the whole tribe, once they heard the dream, acted it out. You know, and every member of the tribe had a role to play in the child's dream. And boy, talk about taking a dream seriously. And in a lot of indigenous cultures, you know, every morning the elders, you know, who had a dream to, last night? Come forward with your dream. And they'll listen politely and very closely and try to give some kind of analysis. So, and in shamanic contexts, of course, uh, shamans around the world, a lot of times we say indigenous religion goes by the term of shamanic traditions, kind of a catch-all category. But shamans around the world have used the dream state for traveling, for purposely, mm -hmm. you know, leaving the body as a lot of people, you know, ancient people thought that when we dream, it's our soul leaving our body. A little feature I came across that I really liked, the idea that you must never awaken a sleeping person. <laughs> I love that because I can't stand that alarm clock. Oh my God, it wakes up, you know, it interrupts you, you know. So I love that. They said, don't ever wake up a sleeping person because their soul might be wandering and then won't be present when you wake them up, you know. Such a concept. I wish yeah. our world could run on that, but I guess the whole business world would not, but it could get up in time and get to work. So in shamanic context, of course, dreams were always taken very, very seriously as important. Then, of course, in the Bible, there's several dreams, dream analysis going on, Jacob's famous dream of the ladder leading up to heaven, and another dream that he had. And Joseph actually gets out of prison in Genesis there, thrown in prison, and then he starts interpreting the dreams of his fellow prisoners and gets the ear of the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh gets him out. I want him as my dream analysis. <laughs> analyzer <laughs> so there are dreams in the bible there's some commentary in the talmud then i just have a little quick run through on history because they're actually it's amazing they're very very few references or works on dreams this one scholar says it's a great line it's in the nature of dreams that they need interpretation because <laughs> yeah. they're often so strange and veiled and enigmatic one of the oldest known written documents on dreams is an Egyptian papyrus dating from, well, 2000 to 1790 BCE, before the Common Era. It's in the British Museum now, known as the Chester Beatty Papyrus III, 12th Dynasty. And this is just such a classic example of how 
dreams have often been viewed. Each entry consists of a dream act, you know, just a quick statement, and then a statement whether the dream is good or bad and what it means. Now here, I've got some examples. This is so great. If a person sees him or herself in a dream, sawing wood, well, that's good. It means his enemies are dead. You get sawing wood, your enemies are dead. Yeah, good luck on that one. This is called a one-to-one correspondence. Right. A dream image meant this. Okay, mm-hmm. seeing the moon shining, that's good. He'll be pardoned by his God. <laughs> Looking out of a window, that's good. The hearing of his wish by his God. Seeing himself dead, that's good. Means a long life. I'm sure all of your listeners are going to want to know about this one because I'm sure it happens all the time in your dreams. Drinking your own urine. <laughs> like every night, right? That's actually good. It means eating his son's possessions. Wow. Eating crocodile flesh is good. And ruling as an official among your people. Seeing people far off is bad. Death is at hand. Copulating with your wife in daylight is bad because your God will see your misdeeds. Okay. Looking into a deep well is bad. You'll be put in prison. Drinking warm beer is bad. Well, can't we all agree that's bad no matter what your context? Suffering will come upon you. So that's an example of this one-to-one correspondence. After that... mm -hmm. I was going to ask, is there any suggestion in the papyri as to how they came upon (laughs) these? Yeah. (laughs) Nobody. It's just, (laughs) here's the dream, here's what it means. Watch out if you're drinking your own urine in your. Isn't it amazing to have these records though from the ancient world? Phenomenal. Oh yeah, absolutely. Then over in Mesopotamia, there is clay tablets found in the Ashurbanipal's great library. Right now, it refers to let's see, several dream books, all of which have been lost, except for this one, the Ashurbanipal library. My gracious, it says, my gracious God, stand by my side. My friendly God, listen to me. God of my dreams, send me a favorable message. So that's what you say before you go to sleep. So then, you know, in the Greek era, down to early Christianity, there we have records of 26 Greek dream books. Mm. All of them are lost, with the exception of one called the Oneirocritica, from the Greek Oneiros, meaning dream by this guy, Artemiodorus, second century of the Roman Empire. All right, he, he used word plays quite a lot. Again, it's a one-to-one correspondence. You dream of this, here's what it means. You dream of a muddy stream. It means ill treatment in court. <laughs> a stream, and now he gives a reason why he came up with that. A stream is like a judge because it goes where it wants. And then he uses contraries. To dream of being mad is good. And then symbols such as ants. To dream of ants, which are industrious, is good because it means fertility. You're going to do a good job on your your job. To dream of a tapeworm means the enemy is sharing your table. (laughs) Okay, so let's see. To dream. Now, now we're into the early modern era. Charles Pierce, Book of Knowledge, 1795. To dream of mules will signify sickness. To dream your feet are dirty. Signifies, signifies tribulations. To see yourself with the devil means gain. To dream of washing in the water denotes easement from pain or trouble. To dream of money signifies loss. 
the old use and opposite, which Freud actually used too, called right. it a reaction formation. Mm -hmm. And now to this day, dream books still sell quite briskly. Today, there are more than 3 million books a year on wow. dream analysis. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the like dream dictionaries. Yes. They seem to be, I've never found them incredibly useful in right. terms of trying to figure things out. Right. And when you were reading from the Egyptian papyri, papyri, papyrus, that's what it reminded me of. Yeah. Some of these like dream yeah. interpretation it's, dictionaries. Why does it mean that? Because you said right. so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so. Now Jung is going to do something quite different with mm -hmm. dreams. But yeah, I would tend to stay away from a dream dictionary today. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to dream this means this. The dream, Jung thinks, Freud did too, that the dream imagery is symbolic in nature, not literal. And a symbol is going to take, it's packed with meaning. It's called multivalent. So it's going to have many, many meanings, not just one thing. So then it goes from there into late 19th century. Now, this is really cool. We finally get to the point of a serious researcher, you know, taking dreams seriously and conducted a number of experiments. And he comes up with the notion, dreams, as the popular 19th century saying went, dreams come from indigestion. <laughs> now we know, haven't you been told, don't eat a pickle, yeah. go on to sleep or you'll have a weird dream. Stated more elaborately, Physicians and psychologists a hundred years ago felt dreams are caused by somatic stimuli. Okay, something happening to your body or in your digestion or whatever will produce a dream. Okay, so he got the idea. There's another, a Scotsman, Dr. Robert McNish, 1802 to 1837. He came up with this one man who is sleeping with a hot poultice, poultice on his head. I don't know, that's like a heating bottle. Yeah. Eating pan, dreamed he was being scalped by a band of red Indians. Another one, wearing a damp nightshirt. Don't go to sleep with wet anything <laughs> on you. Dreamed of being dragged through a stream. A third reported when lying with his feet on a hot water bottle, he dreamed he had climbed to the top of Mount Etna and the ground was intolerably hot. So this seemed to show a one-to-one -one correspondence between what's wow. happening to your body. So it remained for the endlessly ingenious French archivist named Louis Maury, 1817 to 1892, to conduct a series of systematic cause and effect experiments. He is credited with history's first thorough attempt to determine the precise nature and what of dreams. And what he did was he experimentally introduced stimuli on the body during sleep. So here's the idea. If you have lucky enough to be have a, someone you're sleeping there with, <laughs> have them do weird things to your body. <laughs> and let's see what you dreamed. I know you're all getting a visual now. You're all getting a model of what you might do to your loved one dreaming next to you. <laughs> but that's not, here are the things he did. He started this because he had a really amazing dream. Calls it the guillotine dream. In his dream, he was brought, you know, he's a Frenchman. He was brought before the Revolutionary Tribunal during the French Reign of Terror. Robespierre and Marat questioned him. He was condemned, all in the dream, led to the scaffold, bound to a plank, and, you know, his head put in there and the guillotine fell. He felt his head separate from his body. 
and he woke up to find that the top of his bed had fallen and hit him on the neck, at the base of his neck. So the whole dream, he had this thing on his neck. You see, that's what gave him the idea that dreams are caused by somatic stimulus. So here's what he did. He had his assistant <laughs> do these weird things to him while he was sleeping. <laughs> All right, for instance, his lips and the tip of his nose were tickled with a feather, okay? And he dreamed of a frightful form of torture. A mask made of pitch was placed on his face and pulled off, taking his skin with it. Wow. Okay? Then a pair of scissors was scraped across a pair of pliers. He dreamed of peeling bells in the revolutionary days of 1848. He was given some eau de cologne to smell. He was in Cairo and had some absurd adventures he couldn't recall. He was pinched lightly on the neck. He dreamed he was be being given a mustard plaster and thought the doctor treated him like a child. Mm. A hot iron, this is great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a hot iron was <laughs> to his face. He dreamed some robbers had entered the house and were forcing the victims to give up their money by burning their feet with mm. braziers of hot coal, even though the, it was by his face. Water was dropped on his forehead he dreamed he was in Italy sweating violently and drinking white or Vieta wine. Mm. So now we can see by those interesting experiments that indeed his body was experiencing something while sleeping and he produced a dream related to it. But we cannot get the full content of the dream from just that. Right. Okay, he smelled eau de cologne, but he had a whole dream of being in Cairo, you know, in the souk and all kinds of things happen. That doesn't come just from this perfume. So other scholars started to really look at dreams, in particular Sigmund Freud. Okay, now Freud felt, oh, hold on, got my other notes. He had read about Maori's experiments, and he thought Maori was incorrect, claiming that dreams are not somatic phenomena but emotional mm. and then freud comes up with his whole theory which i won't go into here but it all has to do with childhood impressions freud some say was like obsessed with the oedipus complex he's certain everybody suffers from the oedipus complex he had his famous patient anna O, oh, whose arm hurt arm hurt she'd been to all the specialists nothing wrong with her arm nothing at all wrong she finally came to dr freud and he put her under hypnosis and he tried to get, when did the arm start hurting? Well, she's nursing her sick father in the bed, in the sick bed, and she's leaning on her arm all the time, see? And, and then what happens is that she revealed under hypnosis, she felt, oh, are you ready? Are you sitting down? Oh God, out there in cyberspace, hold on, don't fall off your chair. <laughs> she revealed she felt sexual desire toward her father. <gasps> oh my God, we're shocked. And instantly like instantaneously unconsciously she knows how shameful that is so she immediately feels guilt and wants to punish herself how terrible i felt that way so immediately the arm starts to hurt just because she's leaning on it so this is called displacement you take a whole complex of a complex emotional feelings and displace the whole thing onto something else that's not so threatening. Now she has a hurt arm. Not sexual desire for her father and the terrible <laughs> guilt that follows from that. But he was able, Freud brilliantly was able to unravel all of that and find the source of it. 
then he's using that model for all his patients. Right. And he kind of stumbled in something like 1904, well, it's early in the 1900. His book came out in the early 20th century. He practically stumbled upon the importance for analysis, psychological analysis of the phenomena of dreams, jokes, religious rituals, and word slips. All of that together. He called in 1904, he produced this work of the psychopathology of everyday life. Now, why would anyone connect dreams with jokes, religious rituals, and word slips? The word slip, what you know, we call it a Freudian slip. He did not call it Freudian slip. He called it symptomatic actions. So here's the idea. And a joke, he thought, and he did a whole work on jokes or wit and its relation to the unconscious. He thinks that there is an embedded wish in a joke. And it's either of two nature. Jung, oh, sorry. Freud you know, decided in all his vast wisdom that there are two drives in the human psychology. You know, <laughs> everything gets reduced. And that's our operative word with Freud. So these two drives, sex and violence. One is the drive to reproduce and you know, create, you know, further the species. Um, the other is the drive to tear down, to destroy. Eros and Thanatos. Right. Okay. So a joke is going to have a hidden, twisted meaning that's either about violence or sex. You know, when I studied there, I studied, I did a whole graduate seminar in comedy, and I started to pay attention to every single joke. You know, I'm listening, Johnny Carson was still in the air at the time. Every joke had some veiled reference to something sexual or dirty, meaning scatological, you know, or a veiled threat. If it weren't a joke, you'd think it was violent, you know, or into violence. And, and that's what a word slip is, too. The guy says, oh, I loathe my I mean, I love my wife. <laughs> so Freud thought, oh, the real feeling comes out in that slip. And then your ego self, later he'll call it the ego, feels guilty and tries to over. Oh, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. You know, so and there's a famous example. Freud had the psychoanalytic congress. Now the budding brand new association coming every Wednesday for night for dinner at his house. So they all sit around the table and there's a time that Freud picks up a knife and they were talking about father murder at the time. And he oh, drops the knife and everyone said, oh, ha, ha. <laughs> you have a secret death wish against all of your underlings here. So this is how Freud imaged dreams that we're going to, he thought, Oh, and religious ritual is this counting on the rosary beads, obsessive. He calls it obsessive behavior. Right. And what he witnessed in the Jewish context was rocking back and forth constantly while they're praying. He said, this is the same thing as his neurotic patients who enter into obsessive behavior. And then he's trying to look in religion and find why is it, does it produce obsessive behavior? And he found, he says, religion is the obsessional neurosis of the culture. Right. And what does he find in religion? The Oedipus complex writ large, you know, yeah. father's threatened by the son, the father has the son and kills the son, eats him and has all these people. I'll do this to you if you don't believe in Jesus and eat his flesh, you know, because he's, you know, going to rise, et cetera, and tell people what they want to hear. Jung had, I mean, Freud has an amazing analysis of religion in his book called The Future of an Illusion. If anyone was interested in that, very, very tiny, you know, less than 100 pages, and he writes beautifully. He won a Goethe Prize 
played in his life for literary, literary accomplishment. And whereas reading Jung is strange, it goes here and there all over the place and you have to know what he's doing. But Freud is very crisp and clear. And this future of an illusion is one of the best atheist tracts I've ever read. If you want to see all the ridiculous reasons for believing in religion, <laughs> he's got like eight or nine arguments. Religion is foolish because, you know, and then they say this, and it's a really amazing work. So he finds the same thing in religion, an effort to assuage our absolute terrors in life. Okay, now, sleep and dreaming then, he analyzed dreams of children he had a this is his patient who brought in her little child i guess a three-year-old and the three this is this is freudian theory this is classic the child wanted an ice cream cone and the parents said no you can't have it we haven't had dinner yet no cried right guess what child went to sleep later that night dreamed they got an ice cream cone aha here's freud's method of analysis find the wish yeah the wish he thinks every dream has a wish embedded in it. Now, the ice cream example, I don't see how that's sexual or destructive. <laughs> right. But what he's later going to call the id, you know, wants, it wants what it wants right now. So the dream life is compensatory because it fills in the wish the kid didn't get. So here I have a really great statement from Freud. Concept of sleep. Sleep is analogous to a return to the womb. A state in which, you know, we're, it's death-like. The Greeks had said this wonderful line, death is the brother of sleep. Mm. So in sleep, it's analogous to a return to the womb, a state in which the ego and superego are relatively relaxed, allowing free, harmless expression of id drives. See, the person's asleep, so they're no threat to society. They can't get up and go murder. Removal of ego blocks during sleep allows for spontaneous catharsis in dreams. This then is the purpose and function of dreams. So the id can get some release. Okay, so he finds a meaning in it. Now, I must mention here, before I get into Jung, who sees dreams quite differently, there were then, following up on this, 1960s, I believe, started in the 50s into the 60s, Certain universities, University of Chicago, but also University of California at Santa Clara, did sleep research and dream research. Stanford, I know, has a big sleep lab, sleep, a lot of sleep research. Most of that today is about helping people sleep, you know, and mm -hmm. insomnia and problems and so on, not about the content of dreams. Right. But there were some studies, University of Chicago in the mid-60s, this was so fascinating, called the Dream Deprivation Studies. Now, we're all familiar with sleep deprivation. Probably all of us have experienced it if we're in a career at all. And we know what can happen with sleep deprived. And this is a tactic used by people, you know, when they have a prisoner and, you know, whatever, to deprive them of sleep. We're, we're all familiar with that. But this is different. This is dream deprivation. Now, if we go back to my starting statement, opening statement about you know, modern psychologists, psychiatrists do virtually nothing with dreams. And I certainly, everything I'm saying here today can be stand, I can stand corrected. If anyone wants to jump in and say, oh, no, no, my psychiatrist uses dreams all the time. Well, that's great. I'll say, is a union? Yeah. <laughs> so if modern psychiatry, the state of the art, ignores dreams as meaningless firings in the brain, then it would seem to make sense that we can do without dreams. If dreams are meaningless, then what's the 
problem. Let's see what happens if we prevent someone from dreaming. And that's what they tried to do in these famous uh, dream deprivation studies. So they had the students, you know, you're signed up for intro to psychology that semester and you have to participate in some experiments. So they go to sleep in the dream sleep lab. And every time they enter into REM sleep, rapid eye movement is when we know someone's dreaming. You can see it in your pets, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And the breathing is different and the little paws will move. So every time the subject entered into REM sleep, they'd wake them up. Okay, now stay awake for a few minutes. Now you can go back to sleep. Very often they'd go right back to sleep, start right into the same dream. Mm -hmm. Wake them up again. Just keep waking them up till they go back to sleep. Now you can sleep all you want, but you're not permitted to dream. Now what would happen? This is so interesting. If dreams are meaningless, you'd think we could do without it. Every one of their subjects over the space of a semester fell apart completely. They manifested psychotic behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess they got a good job, a a good grade in psychology, (laughs) but all the rest of their classes went to hell in a handbasket. They created psychotics out of regular people who weren't allowed to dream. Wow. So, you know, and they never did those experiments again because they're, you know, they're harmful to yeah, the subject. Sure. Yeah, sure. don't do it anymore. We found out. And this yeah. happened 100% of their subjects, you know, fall apart. That is, can't concentrate, can't do any work, sleeping all the time. Some of them were sleeping 23 hours a day. Wow. And then couldn't, you know, were manifesting hallucinatory, you know, and psychotic behavior. Wow. Well, then I guess we need to dream. And by the way, as if, you know, Nick was my former student, he knows I'll manage to bring it up in every class. (laughs) If you watch long enough, all truth will eventually show up on Star Trek. Oh, yeah. (laughs) In the next generation. You know, you can do anything in space in science fiction. They get near something in space and the crew can't dream. Mm. And I think they took the writer of that episode, took those studies, you know, because every person on the Enterprise went insane, including the captain and started manifesting bizarre stuff and behavior. And they couldn't function and it completely fell apart. Of course, data saves the whole show because he's you know android but then later in later episodes he it's a dream program Hmm. if you're familiar with it and he gets interesting dreams so we have to dream you know you just remove dreams from your life you'll fall apart now doesn't that seem to indicate there's something very vital and important going on in the dream state a modern you know as i call mainstream psychologists might say well sure it's necessary because you're releasing your you know random firings in your brain yeah but the other theorists say these are not random firings this is really meaningful and that sets me up for you so yeah 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 yeah. well yeah let me think here for a second one i just wanted to comment that (laughs) with the star trek there was also an x-files episode Ah. Uh-huh. Uh, it was a group of former soldiers, I think, that were put under a very similar study, but they lost their ability. I think it was they lost their ability to dream, if I remember right. It's been a long time since I saw uh-huh. that episode. Um, yeah, and I think that the killer in the episode was trying to dream again, if I remember. Uh, dream or sleep, dream. one of the two. But I think it was yeah. Yeah, connected. Amazing, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and and I'm glad that you you what you kind of ended with there because 
I think that you're absolutely correct. That's how a lot of modern therapists, psychologists would refer to it is that, you know, it's no meaning in the dream. It serves a function. Yeah. Uh, and it's well, just and that, you know, the brain also, processing information, but ultimately it's just uh, randomness, you know. Yeah. But the other thing I wanted to point out is that this is actually good evidence for the fact that everybody dreams. Yes. Because you will hear a lot of times people will say, well, I don't dream. Nope. And I always say you do, you just don't remember them. Exactly. It was discovered in these dream experiments. Everybody dreams five or six times a night. Every 90 minutes, we move into REM sleep. The dream can go from 10 minutes to half an hour. Now, when you're sound asleep all night, you're not going to remember any of those. You only remember when you woke up. Right. The dream, the wavelength, brain wavelength that's happening while dreaming is just below you know, you're just almost awake, you know, you're ready to wake up. So now there's a whole phenomenon we call hypnagogic, which is in between as you're just waking up, hypnopompic is going into sleep, hypnagogic, and you can have whole dreams, you can have hypnagogic phenomena. Maybe I should before I move on list, I've got 20 different types of dreams. And then I Good, because I actually had a list. I've got one, two, three, four, five. I have seven. Okay. Uh, So if you've got 20, you you beat me. So, (laughs) Well, let's see if you're seven or here somewhere. Uh, And this is just my own because I studied dreams, you know, and I put it together. Jung himself. See, we did Freud. Freud's dream analysis means find the wish, you know the dream. Right. And they're not different. It doesn't matter what type of dream it is. Jung found... hmm? And for Freud, essentially, the wish is either going to be sex or death. Yeah, except how does the kid (laughs) sit with that, you know? Right. And he used what's called this reaction formation. He had a famous case of a young woman who dreamed she was being chased by a mob who want to grab her and rape her. Yeah. Now, in Dr. Freud's, as I say, twisted mind, (laughs) we admire Freud. He said, that dream means there's the wish. The dream means that woman wants to be caught and gang raped by all those men because she has a raging sex drive. Mm. Now, I don't know if today any psychologist telling me that would exactly fly. Right, right. He tells his patient, you want to be caught and gang raped. (laughs) Okay, Dr. Freud. Okay, but that's a reaction formation. The meaning is opposite of what the dream shows. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just my own analysis, I came up with 20 different kinds of dreams. Oh, I was going to say Jung makes a distinction. He's got two different types of dreams. Mm-hmm. Ready? Again, it's complicated. You got to really concentrate to grasp it. Yeah. He calls it, drum roll, little and big. Yeah. Little dream, big dream. And there are lots of dreams that are just kind of gobbledygook and you can just ignore it. It's a little dream. And he said, and he's the master, Dr. Jung is the master. He said there many times, I could not figure out the meaning of that dream. So then I don't feel so bad if I can't. <laughs> the rest yeah. of us can't. But he's got some guidelines and we've made huge, huge progress. He will often you know, be consulting with the client and a dream of the clients will show him where you're supposed to go and what, you know, right. resulting. Right. So I right. came up with these 20 different types and it goes from least complex to most complex okay. okay so the first one is sensory stimulus dreams okay 
Now, you know, for instance, I mean, I'm really constantly, I'm trying to find a bathroom constantly. <laughs> and there's some reason I can't use the bathroom, right? Everyone's watching here. There's no door on the stall or some, you know, that is not complicated and profound meaning. No, you just have to pee. That's all. <laughs> and your body is giving you this, get me to a bathroom, get me to a bathroom, <laughs> you know, when you're sound asleep. And so this all of Maori's, the sensory stimulus dreams, they've all had that. You know, yeah. I dream I'm skiing. I wake up and the, the cover's off and I'm cold. Yeah. <laughs> sensory stimulus, not complicated. Yeah. So that would be like the somatic dreams that you were talking somatic about. Somatic dreams. Yeah. Yes. Somatic stimulus dreams. Yeah. So all of Maori's stuff is in category one, the simplest kind of dream. Yeah. Two, processing or sifting through recent experience. Have you dreamed that? And you just, you know, whatever was just happening, you kind of dream about it. You're kind of fixing in your, you know, um, long-term memory, you know, this is how the brain is functioning. Yeah, those uh, are what I call the garbage in, garbage out dreams. Garbage in, garbage out kind of dream, nothing mm -hmm. too important. Three hypnagogic phenomena. Mm -hmm. And I, boy, I can remember that. I can remember trying to wake up from this really strong night terror. Mm -hmm. And I get my eyes must have been open. Because in, and I'm just waking up, hypnagogic. I can see the leg of the table where I was sleeping on the couch. And then I see the dream stuff. Then I see the leg of the table. Come on. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. just how you wake up. Yeah, I have those too. It's the, the sleep paralysis. Yes. And what is so, for me, what's so frightening about them is it doesn't feel like it's a dream. Yes. It's um, so real. You can't yeah. move. Yeah. Sleep paralysis to keep your yeah. body asleep. Right. 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 So four is assimilation of new experience and information. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can all relate to that. I'm remembering back at age 16, I'm with that <laughs> getting a new job at Jack in the Box, and I'm having to, you know, put all the orders up and erase them and get them. So I'm dreaming constantly of the new skills I'm supposed mm -hmm. to be learning. Or people, if they're studying, you know, and they fall asleep studying, how often you'll dream of what you were reading. You'll dream of math. They're famous. Eureka, the guy was at Archimedes. You know, it came to him in a dream and he jumped right. up and ran out. Oh, I got the answer. Assimilation, new experience. That's four. Five, I call it entertainment dreams. Sometimes you're just kind of like watching a movie mm -hmm. and you're not even involved. And you're just watching all this stuff going on. And we'd have to see the specifics to know if it was more meaningful than that. I just call them entertainment dreams. Six, I'm calling wish fulfillment dreams, which is mm -hmm. kind of a more simple. I didn't get the ice cream cone. Now I got it in my dream state. <laughs> Seven, sexual dreams. I'm sure we can all relate. Sexual drive, sexual experience, getting some satisfaction in the dream state. <clears throat> then I'm calling that number seven, number eight, personal coping or problem solving dreams. Mm. So now if you have something much more significant going on in your life, I remember uh i got dropped from a job some years ago and i was secretly glad because it was awful there <laughs> but i still didn't want to be dropped like that right. and i felt it was unjust mm. and i never got an explanation why and i noticed i kept dreaming over and over about that scenario and going in and talking to them all what is the problem give me some back this is unfair this is unfair i'm constantly back at that school trying to figure out what in the hell happened I noticed that some couple of years after that, our dean at CU Denver actually called me in because I had taught for one year at that college. 
and the UCD was trying to get involved with them financially. And he wanted to know what it was like there. And he knew I taught there and he brought me in. And I got to awake and alert, tell an authority figure everything that happened and how unfair it was and how unjust. Mm. And I uh, advised him, don't get involved with this school, it's a mess. Yeah. And I noticed that the dreams all disappeared after that. Wow. Because yeah. I got some resolution mm. of an unjust, unfair situation. See? Right. So that's more important. Your, your inner mind is trying to work it out. All right. Nine is anxiety dreams. Now, everybody can relate to this. And it has to do with your job or position. So a waitress will tell me, I'm the, the worst dream is a nightmare where I have all these tables and all these people are calling for me and I'm carrying all this and I drop it and spill it and and everyone's yelling at me. That's classic. Oh, yeah. For me, being a professor, I'll have this dream constantly, a version of this, where I'm at the podium and I'm going through my, I can't find my notes. I can't find where I left off the whole dream. And the whole crowd, big crowd is waiting for me and watching me and I cannot <laughs> find my place. And I'm so embarrassed, you know? Mm. See, that yeah. relates to your job. Yeah. So everybody yeah. has that. I don't know if everybody. Yeah, I, I don't know that I've had them with my job, but I do have anxiety dreams. And there are two specifically. I remember, you'll appreciate this. When I was trying to get the person who became my dissertation advisor, I had left the program for a year and I had to try to get my way back in. And I had this dream of her and all I remember of the dream is her looking at me and saying, what makes you even think that you're smart enough to do that? Oh, geez. Yeah. And then, yeah, and I'm keeping things. I'm not speaking a lot of this out loud. You know, I'm, I'm being oh. vague here yeah. that I am in the running for a job. And a few weeks back, I had a dream right before the initial interview where a woman in the dream just looks at me and she's like, wow, we really lowered the bar with you, didn't oh, we? God. <laughs> That's not true at all, Nick. They'd be lucky to have you, but that. I mean, but both of those are, you know, not necessarily work related. One's kind of work related, but still anxiety. Yeah. yeah. Feeling in, inadequate. We all feel inadequate. That doesn't mean yeah. you are. No. Yeah. Right. Right. But it's hard because when you have those dreams, it's like you sometimes get that feeling of, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah wow. Sandra, was it just my anxiety? Right. Yeah, yeah. And people will wake up and feel this was a nightmare. This was the worst experience. Yeah. This is not a nightmare. That's something right. else. This right, is an anxiety right. dream. And I just wonder, I, I'm not doing this, but I'd be interested in anybody doing a study. I wonder whether there are people who do not have these anxiety dreams ever hmm. because they're not responsible people. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Do we know That's any irresponsible question. people? Because I sure do. Yeah. <laughs> and I wonder, I wonder if he ever dreams, you know, yeah. these dreams, when you wake up, you are so horrified that what does it do to you? Oh, it makes you all ready. You know, I've never yeah. let that happen in real life. Right. And it never has where I can't find my notes for a whole hour. You know, it makes you responsible because you saw how terrible it feels in the dream state. Yeah. It actually yeah. helps you. Yeah. All right. So that's called anxiety dreams. They don't have a profound, deeper meaning than that. Right. right. I don't think. Compensatory dreams. Now we're getting into something real much more serious. So Jung gives an example. He, in the 1920s, teens or 20s, he traveled to Africa 
he has come upon his grand theory of consciousness, which he calls collective consciousness. He thinks, you know, it's all connected, not just at the human level, but all really all particles, you know, communicate. It's really phenomenal. So he wanted to see if he leaves Europe and goes to this more primal place. By primal, we don't mean a put down or a judgment or any kind of a you know, judgmental term. We just mean first. We just mean earlier. The earlier, older cultures of Africa, okay, which are highly complex. We don't mean to be diminishing those complex cultures by calling them primal. We just mean original, you know. And he traveled through Africa. And, oh, God, there's this really funny BBC film of him sitting. They found a chair to bring out into the bush. And Jung is sitting on the chair in his suit and tie, smoking his pipe. And the shaman, the witch doctor, you know, the tribe is sitting next to him. And each member of the tribe is coming up and telling their dreams. And Dr. Jung is sitting there, you know, listening to the dreams. Well, he had an experience. He's traveling with his group. This is while awake. And he sees this black man, you know, African man, way, way, way up high on this cliff, looking up like that. It might have been the experience, but I'm not sure if that was the dream. He's working with the African people, you know, and then he dreams this African was high, high above. And when he woke up or he analyzed that image, he felt this is compensatory. This is appropriate because the white Europeans, I don't know if you ever heard of this before, uh, tend to think of themselves as superior to everybody else. (laughs) Their ancient name for themselves, Aryan, it meant nobleman. It meant we're better than you. So they have put down, you know, regarded as inferior the peoples of color of the world. Am I telling you anything you didn't already know? Oh, no. no. And this is the 1920s, you know. So Jung thought this dream, this image, you can just take one image from a dream and have a profound meaning. This is showing me to compensate for the norm where the European thinks he's above and better than the African. In his dream, the African was high above him, mm. making him in the inferior position. He woke up and thought that is entirely appropriate. Compensatory. Now, compensatory dreams can be even more complex than that. I'm at number 11, night terrors or nightmare. Mm. Now we're into the real terrifying, you know, monster chasing you. People with guns are chasing you. You're running the whole dream, whatever it is terrifying terror you wake up in a cold sweat you're absolutely terrified sometimes that can last and last sometimes people remember a dream like that for their whole life mm. when i give my class i'll ask for a show of hands how many of you have had a dream you know that was profoundly meaningful for you even life-changing and you remember it your whole life and every just about every hand goes up so night terrors are their own thing <clears throat> 12 i've got karmic memory dreams mm. and we don't know if we are reincarnated. That's my other class of death and afterlife. But there may be some really interesting uh, evidence about that. And we'll have to come back on the podcast. We'll talk about that. If yeah, you yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, I think there's really good evidence for reincarnation. Um, and we could talk about that as fast. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm trying to think. I don't know that I've ever, I know I've had friends who've had dreams that were set in previous um, times, but I don't know that I ever had that I can remember. Well, I had one that was so vivid and so strong. And it's like, it's not you at all. I was a different person in this dream. I was a woman. I can see my hair all done up, you know, in a bun. Mm -hmm. And I am the wife of an important, important man. 
And it's the old West. And I have my kids, I got to keep them away from him because he's doing important work, you know, and the whole dream was all involved. I lived a different life. Yeah. That wasn't me at all. And at the end of the dream, suddenly I'm the daughter who's mm. going into the father's work. And I wake up, wow, wow what was that? All? That has nothing yeah. to do with me. Yeah. Maybe it was a karmic memory dream. I don't know. We'd never actually know that. Right, uh, right. Karmic memory. So I had a student who had a little son. He's five years old. And he's dreaming constantly of a certain battle in World War II where he was, yeah. he knew every plane in World War II. He knew every, he can name the plane. Right. He can name the guys in the squadron that were injured, you know, mm -hmm. and it was unresolved. So see, yeah. some of these categories can overlap. Number eight, personal coping dream. This was all unresolved because that guy died. Mm -hmm. And then he is born again. He's a little five-year-old dreaming constantly of right. the event where he didn't feel he, you know, lived up to what he was supposed to do because he got killed right right if there would be a karmic memory dream 13 repeating dreams if you ever have a dream that repeats it's of course it's very significant and very important something going on in that dream that you are constantly trying to get resolved right yeah okay. i have repeating ever... locations okay now that's a little different but you can be mm. you know put yourself there in that location or it can be a, a variation on a theme. Right, right. Some people will have the exact same dream over and over all the time. Yeah. And that, of course, that's real meaningful. Then we've got to analyze the symbolism. Yeah, yeah. 14 flying dreams. <laughs> I have my own theory about that. But a lot of people will report flying in their dreams. Mm -hmm. I put it in a whole category. 15 lucid dreams. Right. And it really is very rare that you'll dream, you'll know you're dreaming. Right. Oh, this is a dream. I can change it now. I can make yeah. it go here and there. But it's actually quite rare. Some people yeah. will say they lucid dream all the time. That's rare. That's to, a shaman in training. Yeah, you have to practice. There are things that you can do because I can have, I've had some lucid dreams and there are things you can do. And I know that in the Tibetan tradition, they even have, it's called dream yoga, uh -huh. uh, which is set up. You. And there is a over-the-counter I don't know what it is. You can buy it over the counter. It's a supplement mm -hmm. called uh, galantamine. Oh, okay. And there's a prescription strength for it that they give. Oh, wow. It's given to Alzheimer's patients. Oh, wow. So it affects the memory. Yeah. And with this over the counter supplement, what I've discovered is if you wake up in like two, three in the morning, that's when you take it. Uh -huh. And you're going to have better dream recall, but also it increases the likelihood of lucid dreaming. That's fantastic. Yeah. Say again what that is. It's called galantamine. Okay. G-A-L-A-N-T-I-M-E, I believe. Very good. Oh, and I've got a couple of sources. Yeah. Stephen LaBerge, lucid yep. dreaming. Mm -hmm. And Malcolm Goodwin, Godwin, the lucid dreamer. In case okay. people are interested. See, I called that way down at number 15. Yeah, yeah. Number 16, visitations from the dead. Mm. Now, this is its whole category. I don't know whether that's the dead person actually contacting you and speaking to you, or is it a wish fulfillment? I wish I'd seen my father again. But shortly after he died, I started to have dreams of him and he's talking to me and he's appearing. And they'll mm. always say, this is very common. The dead one will say, I'm fine. I don't know what you're all upset about. I'm fine, you know, and they'll mm. communicate with the living. 
Now, it seems to me that there may be a difference between that and just dreaming of someone who has died. And the reason I say that is because the morning that my grandfather died, I was 16 and I lived with my grandparents and it was sudden. And he wasn't very old. He was only, I think, 64. He had an abdominal aneurysm and they took him to the, in the middle of the night, they took him to the hospital and then they had to fly him to another hospital. And I was left home. So I was 16 and around 5.30 or so in the morning, I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to go back, try to go back to sleep. You know, I'm just here waiting. And I did, and I had a dream. And when I was a kid, I would wait in the backyard for when my grandfather came home and he had this red Ford pickup truck and I'd just wait in that one spot. And in the dream, I'm standing in that location and he walks up to his truck and he stops and he looks at me and he waves and he gets in the truck and he drives off. And that would have corresponded pretty closely to the time of his death. So I would consider that a... Visitation. visitation but i do have dreams of i've had dreams of both my grandparents and i've had dreams of my parents but it doesn't feel like visitations it just right. feels like they're characters in the dream yeah see and you said the the right thing there you you called it the feeling tone of the dream yeah, yeah. you'll have a feeling oh my god that was him oh wow i talked yeah. to him and some people will report having a dream of their grandparent whatever and note the time, they'll wake up, note the time, and then later they find out that's exactly the right. time the person died. Yeah. Right. So this is a visitation. This is a yeah. communication, I think. I'm not yeah. willing to dismiss it as wish fulfillment or whatever. Uh, 17, see, now we're into the real important types of dreams. Jung's uh, version of the big dream. Yeah. 17 is prescient dreams, prescient. Mm-hmm. Meaning you dream something and then seemingly miraculously, wow, it happens. Sometimes this can be, so a student told me about dreaming of going to a swimming pool with her friend and the friend's daughter. And the swimming pool was weird. It was like a U shape, like a horseshoe shape. Mm -hmm. You know, that's weird for a swimming pool. And the next day they're actually going with that friend and daughter and they go to the the swimming pool was exactly that shape. And wow, isn't that strange? How do we understand that? Now, I have a really amazing one, if I have time to read it. Do I? Yeah, please. Okay, we'll do it. And then you can edit, you know. So this dream came from, look at the date, August 9th, 2001. Mm. One month before 9-11. Okay, this is her dream from a month before. I'm at an airport, and there are lots of planes taking off and landing. I'm in line to get on a flight, but I have to wait while someone's carry-on is measured. There's something wrong, but no one can tell what it is. I'm looking at it, and its edges are too sharp. It's too heavy. I try to tell someone no one wants to hear me. They're taking far too long. I figure if I run down the concourse to another line, I can catch another plane faster. When I get in the other line, it's as long as the first one, and I can see the plane being loaded with the last of the luggage, and there's a carry-on bag again. I'm puzzled. Are there two of them? While I'm watching, the plane is shut up and taking off. I run back to the other line, hoping it's small enough I can get on, and damn it, it has taken off too. I rush outside, get into a car, thinking I can catch one of them in the next town when it lands to get to where I'm going. I get to a city, park the car, start walking. The buildings are very tall, with the streets having a canyon feel. There are deep shadows where the sun doesn't shine. The sun shines only on the top of the buildings. It's daytime, there are people on the sidewalks and cars moving on the street. 
I was wondering just what time it was. And I looked around for an outside clock somewhere. There's this large building with one of those moving signs moving over the doors, you know, wrap around and windows wraps around the corner of the building. It keeps showing the time, 9-11, keeps repeating it, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11. I continue walking very fast so I won't be late. Just up the street, there are two giant pillars that shine in the sun. I can see my plane flying low and I hurry so I can be there when it lands. I look up again and I see it has crashed into one of the giant pillars. There was smoke and fire. I can't believe it. I've stopped dead in my tracks. I don't know what to do. Okay. I see the building with the time moving around saying 9-11. But the corner of the street, there's a city sign with an airplane on it pointed away from the pillars with a pentacle on it, five-pointed star. I look up the street. People are running and looking scared, and there's lots of smoke in the street. I look up and see the other plane I tried to catch. I automatically know it's a different plane from the first one because the two dreams are beginning to gel. It's flying by the first pillar that's burning and smoking. I think, thank God it's going to miss it and not crash. It flies past it, then it curves sharp and crashes right into the other pillars. There's fire and smoke and stuff falling everywhere. Cars are crushed. I was running to try to get away. I couldn't run fast enough. Someone grasped my hand and we run faster. There was this huge cloud of smoke and dust and large rock-like structures coming down after us almost on top of us woke up heart pounding it was 5 48 almost time for my alarm to go off wow. a month before 9 11 yeah i had two guests on that <laughs> both spoke about precognitive dreams uh-huh. and one his name is eric wargo his approach what his kind of theory is that the precognitive dreams what you just read, I think, goes against what how he views them. But his point of view is that most of the precognitive dreams are actually really mundane. And when he actually uses 9-11 as an example, and for him, he says that his precognitive dream was actually like him reading about 9-11 yeah. Um, yeah. rather than having that kind of Mm-hmm. more full precognitive full. experience um, and, and I don't know that I agree with him because I've had precognitive dreams right. myself and it's often not about anything that I've read or right um, I have they, yeah. some years later I experienced something that I saw in a dream right. but we can't that's a good example it isn't like there's anybody who's a living expert you know even right, right, right. Himself. we can't right. go around making these generalized statements oh always a prescient dream is about something mundane like yeah. that swimming pool with yeah. the odd shape didn't yeah. mean it anymore but no here are examples of real prescient dreams same with right. the kid you know in black elk speaks who dreamed mm-hmm. of the destruction of his whole culture right you know? right no yeah. they can be very yeah yeah yeah, the one with the, the swimming pool, that seems to fit more into that category yeah, of the mundane, right? But you um, saw it before you saw it. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that 1718 is oracular dreams. This is really fantastic. Mm. So I had a student who was religious. She worked with her church and she dreamed she's in the robes, you know, the choir robes or whatever it was, going up just like a procession. So, you know, surrounded by deep you know important meaning and you know reverent kind of an attitude and she comes up to the top of the stairs and it's an angel it's some kind of creature that reaches down and puts the cross in the ashes on her head on her forehead it's like you are meant to bring this message or something she gives her a job or a you know calling or 
wow, this is fantastic. And it's not as common as you think. If you ever are in a dream and some great figure is handing you, you know how, how awful it is. You get a message or you're reading. It's some message about the meaning of life. And you wake up and you can't read it. You right, know what right. you can say. That's an oracular dream. I sure wouldn't dismiss that. And then 19, what Jung called the big dream or archetypal dream. Now we know from, here's a good example of a real packed, phenomenal dream. Have any of you ever seen that little film came out a few years ago, Wizard of Oz? Everybody know that? It's a dream. In the end, we find out Dorothy was asleep dreaming the whole time. She dreamed of the whole hero's journey, or Hera, because she's the woman. She connected with her autonomous figures. She, uh, you know, traveled to Oz, and it was oracular. You know, she got the message from the Wizard of Oz himself, go get the broom of the witch, Wicked Witch. She dreams the whole thing of soul evolution and the path of individuation. When she wakes up, the characters from the farm were the ones in her dream. And they keep saying, oh, honey, it was just a dream, which is what we're saying the modern you know, psychologists will just dismiss. That was nothing right. but random firing. Really, the Wizard of Oz was random brain firing? <laughs> I don't think so. And you know, she keeps saying when she wakes up, no, 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 it was a real place. It was real. You were there. You were there. You were there. No, it was real. And she was transformed by the you frozen again <laughs> a dream here's what we mean by great big for shamanic journey what we might call out-of-body experience and the shaman can you know travel from the body and find lost items or find the cure for whatever and this is quite serious business i don't know if i felt like one time in a dream i was actually journeying you know and it's just a feeling tone you can't tell but there's my 20 dreams. Now, what were your seven? You got, you hit them all. Okay. So I had the garbage in, garbage out is what I called it. And then I said, there's a mix. And what I meant by that is there's a blending of, you know, that sort of garbage in, garbage out. But then it also incorporates material that goes beyond that. Mm. And then I had big dreams. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Precognitive dreams. Okay. And lucid dreams. There you go. So, yeah, yeah. So I just elaborated and found others like the anxiety and this and that. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and there might be more types of dreams than that. But let me get into, because yeah. I know our time is slipping away. Yeah. The important part is Jung's analysis. Right. So, and I'll just give a quick thing and then some examples and we'll call it. Okay. Yeah. 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 Don't worry. We're, we're good. Okay. We're good. Okay. Yeah. Well, Carl Jung, of course, was the protege of Freud's for a few years. So they broke. And he founded a whole different alternative form of psychology, calls it analytic psychology. He really is the father, you know, the godfather of what we call transpersonal psychology today. Jung felt there are always two levels at work in, in human experience or, you know, in experience. Personal, which is your own life and your own stuff that you're working out in the dream state and in the waiting state. But then there's a collective level. So often if you're dreaming of one person or you know interacting with one other that tends to be kind of rule of thumb personal dream whereas if you ever dream of a whole city and all kinds of stuff is happening you know that's a collective dream rule of thumb because sometimes a small dream with just a few can also be a collective dream you just have to see how it works you know now Jung where Freud had designated 
the id ego and super ego uh, Jung has a different model okay? and he calls it sorry, ego self the ego self is pretty much like what Freud thought you know the center of consciousness you know the the, the part of you that as I say gets you to the place and parks the car and gets you there the part that wakes up and does all your responsible things in life you know there's your ego self waking state ego self right. mm, Freud said there's an it which is this it's called an it the ancient savage animal within which Freud thought has to be severely repressed if we expect to live in society at all civilization okay and then there's a superego which is the voice of guilt the internalized authority figure we can all hear do you hear your mother's voice your father's voice sometimes oh you're a bad person you're not good enough. you know oh you're dumb oh god you know so that's the voice of guilt the superego and they all have a role to play in dreams Jung comes out with a different model ego yes about the same you know waking and he call it's a light so when we shine a light on things we can see it that's the ego self hmm. behind the ego he calls it the shadow and he calls it that because it's in the shadows you know from this lit up center the shadow uh, parallels freud's id which is the ancient savage drives everything that nature put into us for our survival and the species survival aggression lust power drive you know intensity anger frustration when you get your temper up, you turn into a savage animal <laughs> or the sex drive and the hunger drive, etc. built in by nature for our survival. Now, Freud's concept that we have to severely repress that if we want to be civilized, Jung thinks just the opposite. Anything in the system that you try to suppress will only make it bigger. It will inflate it and distort it into a monster, right? And then it'll be a monster coming out. So the shadow the collective shadow holding the violent and savage and aggressive drives has long ago in the western world been severely suppressed and the religion plays its role to suppress all that and suppress sexuality too well and this is what my book was about you know right. two thousand years later we're bursting out with violence all over the place every day another shooting random shooting it's always the same kind of person it's white male mm -hmm. that isn't random that's for a reason okay young or an older white male sometimes it's a hispanic very rare every now and then a woman is involved very rare it's mostly the older white male that went ballistic you know up in las vegas from that you know hotel room and just shot everybody down there why does this happen we keep throwing up our hands why does this keep happening though because we have guns yeah because we have guns available but it's also because i'm arguing not the only factor at work, but a significant one, that we have a dangerously repressed, diseased shadow at the collective level in the Western world. So it's going to keep producing this over-the-top random violence until we can address. And Jung doesn't know, how do I get a whole society in the consulting room to transform society? Jung is Swiss-German. He witnessed everything happening over the border in Germany in the 30s and 40s, and he wrote about it. Mm -hmm. And he mm, saw a lecture by Hitler, and he saw these weird movements Hitler was making, and he thought, oh my God, one of my crazies from the insane asylum is loose and is running a whole country. Wow. And he thought, how do I, he could see what he called a mass psychosis, right. 
uh, in Germany. And he thought, how do I, what do I do? What do I do? I know what's happening. What, what can I do to help? And he actually went up there to meet Hitler. I don't know. I think there's a picture of him shaking hands with Hitler. Hmm. And that's why people said, see, he was a Nazi and he was a racist. And he worked with the Nazi, which is completely untrue. He right. tried to invite Hitler into yeah. the consulting room. Come on, you need psychological help. Yeah. You know, and he met the crew and everything. And they all said, hey, we're not, we're fine. I don't know what your problem yeah. is, you know. Yeah. So, and I learned later that he, I think that Jung did work for the Allies as some kind of a espionage agent. And he had yeah. a, a, a number assigned to him and everything during the war. So hmm, he worked for the, you know, for the allies, of course, but yeah, he's yeah. like stunned. And he wrote this work called Wotan, right. 1936, very famous. He said the German God, you know, and all the gods got severely suppressed. Now they're twisted monsters. Mm -hmm. And he called it the blonde beast. And he saw it in like 1911 in his German patients, not his Swiss patient, his German patient, right under the surface is a monster. And duh, we all saw it erupt in World War II. I believe if Jung were alive today, he would say in this country, maybe the world, we are experiencing a mass psychosis. Oh, yeah. All the Trumpers, the crazy Trumpers and the conspiracy theory, the QAnon business is all part of a mass psychosis. Mm -hmm. And he would be here to enlighten us and bring his brilliant wisdom into it. And what can we do about it? <laughs> anyway, this is the shadow. Now it's going to show up as a wild beast, you know, any kind of animal is a shadow figure. So Dorothy is dreaming and it's all about Toto. Toto is the trickster figure uh, and also a shadow figure who gets her into the adventure. If you see that movie again, you'll notice every bit of trouble she gets into is because of Toto. Yeah. Uh -huh. And in the end, they're in the basket ready to go home and Toto sees a cat and jumps out and <laughs> tries to get him. <laughs> And then that's Toto. I call it the R2-D2 factor, right, the total right. factor. Yeah. Because <clears throat> Star Wars, I don't know if you ever saw that movie, yeah. is the same underlying story of the hero's journey. R2-D2, right. it isn't an animal, but it's a trickster figure. Mm -hmm. It's all about R2-D2 because the plans to the Death Star are in the memory systems of this R2 unit. And he runs off and Luke's got to go get him. And that's when the Empire showed up and attacked and aunt and uncle are fried. Right. Okay. So, and he's a royal child that's been raised by farmers. Same thing with Dorothy. There are a bunch of these Oz books and she's supposed yeah. to be a royal who's raised by the farmers. So mm. it, it's a classic archetypal story. Right. So the shadow, Toto gets her into it, you know, and then I skipped over persona. So yeah. in Jungian thought, the ego wears a mask or a persona in front, which is how you decide, fully conscious, how you decide you want to present yourself to the world. Oh, your hair, your clothes, how you want to be, you want to be a goth. Oh, what happened to all the goths? <laughs> I don't know. But they used to wear, you know, white makeup and try to look like a corpse walking around. Or we hippies back in the day. Those were the days, man. You know, grew our hair and, you know, didn't bathe and all that. And there's still some of us around. I think we've had a few baths since. Yeah. <laughs> so the persona is just your mask, how you're presenting yourself. And the opposite of the persona is the shadow. Mm -hmm. Here's the area of your life where you don't want anyone to see this stuff. You don't want to see it either. Your faults, your failings, your feelings of inadequacy, et cetera. It all goes into the shadow. Mm -hmm. And the, the collective level, of course, is the whole monster shadow. So in Dorothy, so the collective shadow is the wizard, wicked witch. 
who rules over minions, you know, and now all the kids who saw that, they're mostly scared of those flying monkeys. Right. The flying monkeys are the distorted demon creatures, you know. Mm. And in world in uh, Star Wars, of course, it's Darth Vader is the right. and the Emperor ruling over vast minions. But his personal, we call it personal embraced shadow, is actually Han Solo, who says, right. I don't need you, I don't need you, princess, I'm in it for the money. You know, and he brings into the complex, as we call it, the animal element, mm -hmm. Chewbacca. Right. So Luke is the ego figure. He connects with the wise old man or psychopomp or guide of souls. That's Obi-Wan Kenobi. They connect with, we need a pilot. Okay. The personal shadow comes in. Who's going to do it his way? Solo. See, I'm doing it my way. I don't follow the rules. Okay. With Chewbacca, the animal. And then they go to find the princess. Here's the anima figure. So Jung has a care category, anima or animus, for the opposite gender of the self. Now, remember, this is the 1920s and 30s that he's perfecting this theory. He already sees sexuality or gender as a continuum, not an absolute. And you're somewhere, find yourself somewhere closer to the masculine, closer to the feminine side but we all have the masculine and the feminine within us okay so a woman is going to have an inner male an inner man a man will have an inner woman a gay man for instance Jung says in the 1920s they're just more comfortable living out of their anima side yeah. that's all and he says there's nothing wrong you know at that time Freud thinks it's a disease and so on you can you uh, with the wrong parent but Jung says there's no disease here it's just it's perfectly natural we should expect most hairdressers that are male to be gay you know and most dancers and you know cooks that doesn't mean all of them are and he says in the 1920 we should expect women that go into the military or or athletes or female police officers we're going to have a higher incidence of the lesbian lifestyle in that community not that every one of them is right so he's the first to say, nothing wrong here is just gender differences. But we'll all have the inner anima or animus. Now, I started to notice this. You often have a figure of the opposite gender who is with you all the time in your dreams. They're leading you here. They're guiding you here. They're doing something or other. And you're to look at how the relationship is to see how healthy your inner anima or animus is. So I, you could see me on the screen. I've gone gray. I'm old now. I'm an old hippie. <laughs> but no, my hair is gray. Used to be dark. So I am short and dark. Okay. And I would dream all the time. I learned to identify. Aha, that's the animus. I would dream of this tall, tall, thin youth who's very blonde. The blonde hair fascinated me. That's the opposite color, you see. Jung remembers being a baby. And being held up by the Italian maid that they had mm -hmm. and seeing the jet black hair, you know, coming out from the back of her neck and just being fascinated with that color because he's light, blue eyed and light. So the opposite fascinates us and draws us. So the animus, then I started to notice he's in all kinds of dreams and he's doing different things, you see, mm -hmm. guiding me. All right. So that's the persona, the ego, the shadow self, the anima or animus. When Luke connects with the anima figure, that's Princess Leia, she is literally in the grip of the great collective shadow figure, Darth Vader. You know, and so they have to bring peace and freedom to the galaxy and get rid of the 
evil empires, no small matter. And that's the hero's journey to bring back the boon. So I'll ask the class, what do you think? What is your gift? You know, you're on a hero's journey if you're living the authentic life. If you're authoring your own path, that's authentic. If you're just living your life to fill up and do what everyone in society expects you expects of you, that's inauthentic. Right. And it's not heroic. It's called heroic because it's going to take a hero, heroic effort to get through it. So you're to ask yourself, what is your gift that you've been growing and developing and nurturing to give to the world? You're not done with your hero's journey till you project it out into the world. Bring your gift back to all humanity. You know, Bilbo Baggins, you know, finds the way to Mordor and everything, etc. Frodo then has to go destroy the Ring of Power, etc. All of these are grand hero's journeys. Now, the goal is what Jung calls the great self the capital S. And he says this self archetype is the same thing as the God archetype. Mm. The final stage of the hero's journey is what we call apotheosis, rendered into God, rendered into the divine. So you'll see Bilbo Baggins coming home to the Shire at the very end. And what am I going to do? Just sit around and drink beer in the Shire with my pals after I went to Mordor and back, you know, <laughs> the regular life just won't do so in the very end, the elven king, you know, the elvens come and bring him off to the elven land. And at the very end of Arthur, he dies. And the three goddesses bring him on the ship barge over to Avalon. Here is your entry into the divine. Every religion has an embedded hero's journey. So the end of the journey for the Christian, what is your final goal? Why, it's nothing less than rendered into the divine. You're going to die and resurrect and be with Christ in heaven, you see? Or for Buddhism, it's reaching enlightenment. It's apotheosis. See how my class is yeah. bleeding over into my hero's journey sure, class? Sure. But you'll see these figures. And if you learn this, you'll be able to identify now figures in your dreams and what they're doing. I have a whole other thing coming next on alchemy so that you can see the alchemist produces gold. You know, I mean, earth is the great alchemist that produces gold and gems. That's symbolic of the great self, of the great gifts you're going to give to all humanity, right? Okay. You know, we have in Wizard of Oz, we have the ruby slippers and the yellow brick road and the emerald city. It's all the language of alchemy. So if you learn the basics of alchemy, you're going to be able to identify things in your dreams. And now I have a couple of examples, okay? My dream examples. Now you can apply what we've been saying here. Okay, so I've got a really good example of a dream of a student of mine. She dreamed it as a repeating dream. So we know it's important, right? As a child, a five-year-old child. It's a simple dream. Sometimes you can get a profound meaning from a simple dream. Huh, don't scratch there. It's my new office chair that I have to cover up and protect from cat. So in the dream, she always has to go into this forest, you know, and it's really scary. She's all alone. She's a little five-year-old girl. She has to go into the forest. She's scared to death. So there's the feeling tone of the dream. She has to go deep into the forest where there's this little hut. And she knows she has to go up to the hut and knock on the door. She doesn't want to. She's scared, but she doesn't. And she knocks on the hut and they open the door and it's a bear. It's a bear standing up on his hind legs and not scary at all. He invites her in to play. And he sits her down across the table and he says to her, I'll show you around the whole forest. And she wakes up. Mm. Simple dream, 
profound meaning. What Jung called the unconscious. The conscious mind is going to travel into the unconscious. That's what the dream is. So you're going to learn from the unconscious things you need to know or things about the collective, etc. Okay, so she's the dreamer. That's the ego self walking into the forest. That's the unconscious. Full of dangers. They're devouring forces in the unconscious. It can cause psychosis and so on. So she's in this scary place in the unconscious. She goes to this hut and knocks on the door. It's a bear. The bear is the shadow figure. Now, look at the way the bear acts. Does he try to grab her and eat her? No. He's a happy, nice bear. That shows that she has a good relationship with her shadow self. The shadow calls the resident of the whole unconscious. The whole unconscious is its territory. Do you ever wonder in those fairy tales how that dragon got a whole trunk of treasure <laughs> and, and gems and gold? How did this dragon get all the gems and gold? The dragon is the symbol of the unconscious. The shadow that, you know, travels and owns the whole unconscious. It, it's holding all the wealth and wisdom and magnificence of the super consciousness, the gems and jewels and so on. So the bear, the resident in the forest, the resident ruler of the unconscious, invites her in. That's embracing. That's inviting you to embrace your shadow self. And she goes in, even though she's trepidatious. And then he sits her down and lets play, go into play. That's embracing the shadow. And then he says, I'll show you all around the forest. And that is, I, this is my territory. I'll enlighten you of the nature of consciousness. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. And here's another one that's so great, so perfect. It's a former student of mine. She grew up on a ranch here in Colorado, okay? And the border of the ranch was the Indian reservation on the other side. So she would constantly dream, a repeating dream. We know that's important. She goes to the edge of her property and there's a fence. She never goes over the fence. She stays on her side. That's conscious, the conscious realm. Mm. Over the fence, she waits and waits every time for her friend, her best, best friend, it's the Indian boy. Mm. The Indian boy comes up. Now, he's an anonymous figure because he's the opposite gender of the dreamer. But he's also a shadow figure because the primal self, the savage or primal ancient man within is the shadow. Again, not to disparage Native American culture by any means. We're just saying it's here earlier. It was here first. It's primal. So she meets her primal shadow self and anonymous self. Now they play and play and he can never come over and he, she can never go over, but they play at the fence and she loves him so much and she misses him. And this is her best friend that shows her relationship with the animus. She's got a good, strong, healthy animus because she has embraced him fully. He's her best friend. And at the end of the dream, he always says, I have to go now. Oh, she's so sorry to have him go. And he turns around. This is so fantastic. Now he turns around to wave goodbye. And he turns into a wolf. Mm. I call it the wolf boy dream. Yeah. The Indian wolf boy. Now he's full on shadow as a wolf. Mm. But he doesn't threaten. And he, he looks back. You know how a dog can smile? You know, he looks back and he doesn't wave. He waves his tail, whatever. Bye-bye. See you next time. That is a fabulous dream that shows, you know, that she's got a healthy shadow, healthy animus. Much in contrast to this dream now, student told me, this was the 90s. This was just starting to happen in the 90s. Now we're so familiar with it. In his dream, he's in a city. So we know that's the collective. He's up on a higher floor in his office, in the office. And there's a guy down the street. 
who's a dark haired guy. The shadow, its color will be black. Okay. So a dark haired or black haired guy. Actually, it was Tony Curtis in his dream. I don't know if people even know who that is anymore. My students don't know who that is. He was as tall as the tallest buildings. That's called inflation. That's a dangerously diseased shadow. What is he doing? He's got a, a assault rifle and he's randomly shooting into the windows and on the street as tall as the tallest building. And the dreamer in his office, they're all in a panic and they're getting under their desks to save themselves and breaking glass, shattering glass everywhere. And then he wakes up. Now we're familiar with that scenario. Right. Showing that our, in waking life, our collective shadow is an extremely dangerous disease condition. We got to do something to learn to embrace yeah. the shadow. So yeah. Those are examples. Yeah, I, I've got one for you. Okay. Uh, and this is when I was younger, I had this, it was a recurring place in, in a dream. And it was this old decrepit movie theater. Okay. And the, you know, the seats were like all tore up and, and the audience and the floors were all sticky and the audience was always weird. And I would sometimes see movies on the screen. And so I learned eventually after taking some courses with someone that that was projection. I'm like, oh, there's projections onto the screen. Uh-huh. And what I learned eventually and these dreams went on for a long time was that it was my unconscious really coming to terms with my sexuality because the very last dream I had was that the movie theater had been refurbished Uh and it what they were holding the academy awards there (laughs) and the hosts were Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin Oh. And I don't know if you remember, but back in the, I think in the eighties, they yeah. did a movie together Basically. called all of me. Yeah. Well, no, her spirit went into his body. Oh. So they were one. Yeah. And I remember at the end, they were standing there holding the golden Oscar. Whoa. And that was the last dream I had in that movie. Now I do have dreams of movie theaters now, but never that old decrepit one, never that one that was all run down, but it was telling me the journey. And it's like, okay, at the end, you got the uh, the award and it was golden the award there's the alchemy yeah and alchemy. i like that the the masculine and feminine you know it was the union of them it transformed yeah. your yeah consciousness because the old decrepit movie theater are there other people in the theater or just you oh yeah 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 but and sometimes have- there would be like annexes to it <laughs> i don't remember all of them but there was a whole series i dreamt about it a lot yeah, yeah. Yeah. Your old way of being yeah. is run down, ill, yeah. undeveloped, can't thrive, the opposite yeah. of thriving, you're decrepit, you're falling apart, you're not yeah. happy. Yeah. In the end, you see an image of a female figure, the anima, entering into the masculine. Yeah. Everything is refurbished now. Yeah. You have been transformed once you learned it's okay. Yeah. not only okay it is your destiny you know yeah. honorable and once you connect with the inner anima you're handed an award is yeah. golden you made it to the gold wow yeah. fantastic yeah. dream yeah 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 i That's thought you would appreciate wonderful. that one yeah seemed to go well with what you were talking about now, do you still keep dreaming of the decrepit old theater no See, uh, it's weird. yeah yeah i i do have <laughs> 
dreams of movie theaters every now and then, but it's never yeah. that theater. Yeah, I've never, never Once had that again. A resolution that dreamed yeah. theaters. See? Yeah. Yeah. See? I'll tell a quick one. I'm in a parking structure, you know, with all the floors. Mm-hmm. And I am trying to push with my hands. I'm behind a bus, trying to push the whole bus up the stairs. <laughs> On the bus are my students. See, yeah. it's when you can give a quick one. Yeah. And when I had that dream, oh, that made all the sense in the world to me. And I told the students, here's, this is my job. Right. What's your job? Pushing bus up the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> now, the parking structure, kind of like a labyrinth, mm-hmm. symbol of the unconscious. The unconscious will be symbolized by you know, forest, right. deep sea, labyrinth, etc. Okay, mm-hmm. so I'm in the unconscious. What am I doing? A bus, so you'll often dream of your car. Watch what happens with your car. Your car is your soul chariot. Mm-hmm. You used to say your horse, now it's your car. I go out one day in my dream, I open the, there's no engine in my car. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm depleted. I can't go anywhere, you know, or I can't put the brakes on. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a common problem with Sharon. Yeah. She never stops talking. <laughs> what she's done, she keeps talking to herself. She doesn't know how to put the brakes on. Uh, so in this dream now your car is your soul chariot oh i'll have many people tell me they dreamed that the car was on a cliff careening all out of control and going off a cliff and some nameless man was driving i don't even recognize him that's the animus if your car is all out of control and it's your life your life path is do you feel so i'll ask the student well do you feel like you're kind of out of control things are all you're overwhelmed oh, yeah how'd you know <laughs> from your dream yeah. so what am i doing if it's a bus that's a that's collective that's a lot of people not just one car mm-hmm. all my students are on the bus i am trying to push it up up the stair upward mm-hmm. and union thought is toward higher consciousness right downward is into the unconscious i am taking a group of students with effort mm-hmm. and my job is to try to push them you know, bring them to higher consciousness and educate them about yeah. the nature of consciousness. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And what came to mind there was Plato's allegory of the cave, uh-huh. uh, because I I teach that two different ways. I teach it in terms of his metaphysics, but also as a symbol of education. Mm-hmm. And that you know, yeah. when he frees the prisoner, it's this turning around to the mm-hmm. light. Yeah. But then, and I love this because when the story is retold, this is often left out. Uh, but he actually says that he drags the prisoner out of the cave. Uh-huh. They have to literally be dragged out of the cave. And so are. that's what I thought. You're not dragging them, but you are pushing them up. Because it's hard to get them to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Higher consciousness. Yeah. Well, and yeah. it feels like that, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, Plato says in there at some point, the prisoners who love the darkness. Yeah. Yeah. Because we, we prefer to be unconscious. Yeah. Inauthentic. That's mm-hmm. why it's going to take heroic effort to right, follow right. this path and yeah. authenticate and live your own yeah. Your bliss. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, I know that we're kind of running out of time, but let me share one last one with okay. you that I just had recently. Okay. And- makes sense, right? What I'm oh, saying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, identify the figures in your dreams. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have you back on. Okay. Um, and we'll pick this up. And the plan is to have people call in or put in the chats okay. some of their dreams and we can, you can do some interpretations. And so critical. Yeah, uh, yeah. Freud charges $300 to analyze your dreams. Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> okay, 
What's um, your? Well, I, I had this one recently and in this one, I was carrying a bicycle. I was carrying my bicycle. And so sometimes it, I'll have different dreams of a bike or a car and whatnot, but this is my bicycle. And I was walking across a frozen river mm. or a glacier mm. and it had started to break. And so in the dream, I was up to my chest in waters and I had the bicycle up above my head. And there were like these big chunks of ice and the water was going really flowing and I was able to make it to the other side. And for me, it was like, yes, it, things have been frozen and now it's thawing and I'm finally you, able yeah. to move. It's a phase you're in, fro you've been frozen, yeah. but things are thawing, but you're feeling overwhelmed. You, you yeah. could drown. Yeah, yeah. Well, I made it to the other side. So <laughs> keeping your mechanism for journeying your bike yeah, yeah, above yeah. your head, you know what you're doing, yeah. but things are really starting to move. Yeah. And it could be such movement that you could be overwhelmed, but you make it. You do yeah. not succumb. Yeah. And I think that dream also shows a collective level. Because mm. we are dreaming, you're an individual who's dreaming of the of climate crisis. Right. How right. glaciers are melting all over the world. Sure. We're right. going to be drowned. And yeah. you better keep your bike, you know, above the water. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Good point. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah. So is there anything that people can do to help remember their dreams? Well, Jung said that, you know, he was very frustrated when he's working with a client and they can't remember their dream. He said, just keep giving yourself through the day the suggestion. Mm -hmm. I'm going to remember my dreams. Yeah. Just keep saying that to yourself. I'm going to remember. And when you go to sleep, I'm going to, I'm purposely going to remember my dreams. Now, I don't know if it works, yeah. but you, you know, keep, keep suggesting it to yourself. I have noticed myself getting older. I think my mind is going away, Nick. Mm. I think I'm losing my mind because <laughs> I've noticed short-term memory. And the first yeah. thing, you know, kind of slipping. And I've noticed the first thing I noticed was I can't remember my dreams anymore. So, well. yeah, yeah. But when there's an important one, yes, I remember. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've noticed the, uh, that with actually cannabis because it affects short-term memory. And so if I happen to eat a gummy or something that I won't remember the dream. So if I don't, then the short-term memory comes back. Yeah, um, yeah. I've learned to just let some dreams go. Yeah. 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 Watch the, let me just say this because this is going to be so, excuse me, significant for the dream state. Sorry, the color sequence. I'm sure Nick remembers this and so, so tremendous. In the alchemist starts, they're going to try to create gold. They're going to start out with the material which is green. It's green to start with, like the plants out in nature. While it's green, it's alive. Mm -hmm. Now the alchemist can't do anything with it while it's green. It's called vertigo in Latin. Then it dies and it turns into the black phase, negredo. And this is happening to your soul. Like the beginning of every semester, it's all green. Oh, you're all excited. Oh, I want to study this. Oh, I want to work on that. You know? And then you get, well, it used to be a stack of books you'd bring home. Yeah. Now it's just the internet, but you see yeah. all that you're going to have to do. Oh, you just died. Mm. Something in you just dies. You know, I can't do that. Oh, it's overwhelming. You move into the black phase where the, your project is a masa confusa, a yeah. confused mass. And uh, you, it, this is called depression. 
Depression is a black phase. And then gradually let it follow its course. It's going to whiten, whiten, slowly whiten. So the alchemist will have a black dog they draw and the little tip of the tail is white. And then the next drawing, it's got some white, you know, and then he's got white patches. And then it's mostly a white dog with, with black patches. And then it's an all white dog. Mm. That's moving from Negredo into Albedo. Right. Negredo is the depression phase. Or I use pregnancy as an example. The night you got impregnated, that was green. That was great. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, geez. So the next day you wake up and you're there, you know, you get a little, and your little baby in there is a massa confusa. Have you ever seen the pictures of the little fetus in developmental stages? Yeah. Oh, it's a, it looks like a little monster. Yeah. And that's the first trimester. You're, you're unformed. It's all trying to form itself. Like your project for your term paper. You know, it's all just confused. And you can't even move. Then you move into the second two trimesters. Uh, and the little guy is, you know, an inch, you know, two inches big, but he's all formed. Yeah. And he's a little human now. And then the second two trimesters is just about getting bigger, getting bigger to be viable outside the womb. So this is called white phase. And this is called albedo. It's called incubatio. You're incubating your great self, your great project. So during, you know, as you're working on your project, okay, you start to see a, you know, scenario, you start to see a pattern. Now you start, now you got a better idea of what you're doing and trying to do. Okay. And in life, you're in this white phase, working on it, working on it. It's called, it gives you white hair, which is highly prized because, you know, it, it indicates wisdom. Uh, and then it moved to rubedo, red. Now that's birth giving and it's all red. Now it's bleeding, blood all over. And it's magnificent and liberating and horrifying and terrifying at the same time, painful. So a red phase, rubedo. You'll hear people, you know, I was in a car accident. I lost my job. My wife left me, you know, the kids left me, everything all at once. That's a red phase. And in red, you're ripped apart. Like your baby is actually, you know, ripped from you and you're ripped apart. And it's said to be like divorce is a red phase. Said to be the only time in the cycle you're able to see what your innards are made of, you know. You're able to reach in your inner self and rearrange your furniture, you know. <laughs> Only in a red face can you rearrange yourself. Mm. And then you come out of it, like divorce, you got to come out now. And that's, not, that's her friend now. This is my friend. This is my stuff. This is her stuff. You're all rearranged. And then you move out. The phases in between these phases is called citronatio, yellow. But now you're red. You gave birth. Okay, is it over? Is it all over? No, you no. take that kid home. Now you got him the rest of your life. <laughs> and graduating you know you keep going through semester after semester now it's mm -hmm. green again new semester till you finally graduate it's a spiral you go up the mm -hmm. spiral yeah. interestingly what do they call it when you graduate in the big ceremony and what do they call it commencement mm -hmm. you're just beginning so your last phase is over now you're just beginning a new phase all the way round and round and round until your whole journey takes on the quality of purple and gold purple and gold that's the goal that's the symbol of the divine self the apotheosis mm. okay so here's a, i had a student who the dream was she wants to be an actress she's going into a theater major right she dreams of a movie theater but it was completely empty except for her the the floor was bright red red and the walls were white that's her whole dream she wakes up i said aha now, red phase, it's one thing to be in a red phase, like the ruby slippers. Your journey's going to be painful and blood is involved, pain and suffering is involved. Mm. But take it out of the sequence. Red is going to, you know, 
I told her, your journey to become an actress will involve suffering and difficulty. (laughs) But that's what you're dreaming. I'm ready. I'm willing to go through the suffering. Mm -hmm. And the white, white, not only is it an albedo phase working on it, incubating, but just white in general, if you ever dream of colors, it's going to mean something. White, it reflects all color and black absorbs all color. So you can get the rainbow out of the white, right? Mm -hmm. So it's vast open potential. Your future is wide open with potential here. And the way the bride wears white, Mm. you could say purity and all that. But in this line of thinking, no, it's holding great potential. The marriage, your life together can be anything from here. Great, terrific, bad, awful, divorce, whatever. You're holding it all in potential on the wedding day. So it's important to get that piece for dream analysis. You've got to... One time I thought I was in red already and I'm manifesting. When uh, it's uh, your semester, you finally turn your paper in. Mm. That's red. And then you get it back with all the red marks all over. So I thought I'm in red. And then my dream showed me white, white all around. And there was this amazing uh, highway, which went diagonal, but straight, so straight. And Mm. the dream is showing, this is the way to go. And you're not in red yet. You're not done, you know, incubating. (laughs) So this is important too. I'm sorry to keep going on. That's fine. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. We, we are kind of out of time, but let yes. me ask if there's anything else that we've missed. And again, you're going to come back and we'll pick this conversation up analysis. Uh, yeah. and do some analysis for uh, some Falling folks. Your dreams. Um, yeah. But uh, is there anything that you wanted to add final words in terms of the dreams? Just keep on dreaming Yeah. and don't dismiss it. There's meaning and power and value in your dreams. Yeah, You might have a life-changing dream one day. I did. Yeah, Yeah, we need more dreamers. Yes. We definitely need more dreamers. You may say, I'm a dreamer. I'm not the only one. Right. I hope someday you'll join us on the world can live as one. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Who wrote number one dream? Yeah, he wrote about dreams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep dreaming out there call in with some dreams. All right. Well, Sharon, thank you so much for your time you, and for speaking with me and we will pick this up very shortly. So okay. uh, I will look forward to that future conversation. Excellent. Thank you. All right. All right. Well, yes, thank so you. you and everybody out there in podcast cyberspace. Okay. Dream on, dream on. And that's a wrap on episode 58 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you're a part of my YouTube audience or watch this on Spotify. As I mentioned in the intro, Dr. Kogan will be returning on Sunday, December 4 for Rebel Spirit Radio's first ever live stream. Sharon will talk more about dreams and will interpret dreams for folks who join the live stream. So be sure to follow Rebel Spirit Radio on Facebook and or sign up for the newsletter at rebelspiritradio.com so you can be informed of the live stream event with Sharon as well as all future live events. I'll also be launching a Patreon in December. Uh, Until then, you can still make a one-time donation via PayPal if you'd like to support my work here on Rebel Spirit Radio. The link is in the show notes or video description. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help especially if you listen on Apple. If you have a minute to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review. And please subscribe. 
For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.